For important disclosure information, please visit acgwealthmanagement.com forward slash podcast disclosure. Hello and welcome to ACG Wealth Management's Beer Markets, ACG Wealth Management's podcast um, where we talk a little bit about the markets. I'm Bobby Moyer and I'm joined with my colleague Sandy Wiggins. How's it going, Bobby? Good. It's a great day. We're recording this on Friday afternoon, which is a fun thing to do on July 14th. We get to have a have a cold beer together and, and talk about what's going on with the markets and have and, some fun. And there's lots to talk about for sure. We got some good data. Yeah, we do. We, there's and always some good lots. beers. Yeah, exactly. Do you want me to start it off? Go for it. Great. I'm I'm today having a Voodoo Ranger Juice Force IPA, which is from um, New Belgium Brewing, which was originally found in 1991 in Fort Collins, Colorado. They have since expanded, I believe, to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, it's fruit forward. It it feels like, given the high ABV, I like again. I like this in the summer, but these high ABVs, you know, make me a little bit nervous, especially this one that you wouldn't know it by taking a sip of it. But it's it's a it's a pretty tasty IPA. So I'm gonna crack this open and enjoy this on on a sum, um, summer afternoon. Sandy, how about you? I've got a, uh, a Richmond-based beer, Bingo Beer. They're located in Scott's Edition here in Richmond. It's um. It's a lager, a German malt with Bavarian hops, and uh, I'll leave the the finer, you know, note noting to Bobby uh, for for uh, for his beers. I'm not quite the beer connoisseur, but again, it's a nice hot sun uh, uh, sunny afternoon here in Richmond, so we'll enjoy a beer and yeah. Talk- Bingo Brewery is a fun place. You know, we actually had a corporate outing uh, down there at their their office in Scott's Edition and, and played some bingo and had some fun, or not bingo, but some Video arcade games, games and, and, and ping pong and bowling. and Yeah, it's a, it's a fun place. So showed a, a little competition within the company. I think somebody, you know, we had, to, we had to tame a few people's enthusiasm for competition. Yeah, you know, a little competition. Uh, I guess it has hurt some some people in the past, you know, occasionally. But it's good for it's good for us too. Yeah, uh, like but it's it. a, but it's a fun place down there. Good good selection on that beer. Great beer. Yep. So, Sandy, last time we had our podcast, we kind of ran out of time. But at the end, we were talking about uh, the VIX, and you know, I think I made the comment that you know where the VIX low level was was very low at the time. It was at thirteen point seven. And, you know, surprisingly, we're still in the 13s. We had a little bit of a spike during the 4th of July week up to 15, 15. which isn't very high. And um, the VIX is an interesting, you know, it's gotten the, I guess, the the terminology or nickname, the the fear index in the past. And, and, you know, the reason is that when the markets get volatile, you see a spike in, in the VIX. Um, a bunch of people putting insurance on their portfolios or buying insurance on the S&P 500, and that spikes the volatility index. You know, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, I'm looking here at the 52-week range. It's between 12.7 and 34.8. During last year, you could have played the markets a little bit on a counter trend with the VIX where you would buy when the VIX got in the 30s and sell when it got back down to 17. And uh, that's counterintuitive, right? Why would you be buying when there's fear in the market and, and the opposite selling when there's no fear? Um, but, but generally, that's it, it, it's a, an ex- I like it as an extreme um, indicator where it hits some di- different extremes. You could trade the opposite of what you would expect. Yeah, it, you know, but again, we're kind of in the summer doldrums. We haven't seen much movement 
you know, like you said, right now it's 13. Last week it was 15, but that's that's really not much to speak of. And and I think while you're while you're bringing it up, is it it's unusual? It's unusually low. We would have expected a little bit higher VIX. What does that really mean? Uh, what is that foretelling? Do you think over the next two or three weeks? Yeah, I don't know. It's you know the markets are complacent right here, and you know we all know that the markets have gone on a, a pretty strong run here so far this year. The S and P. Looks like it's up about 18.5% before today's close. I think we might have been down just slightly today. But, um, you know, for how high the market is, the, there's complacency out there. Even though there continues to be fear and, and bears, um, you are starting to see a little bit of shift in market sentiment, you know, away from that bear sentiment we saw in December to more positive now. And, and a lot of that's chasing or FOMO, fear of missing out. And, you know, so I don't know what it's what it's telling us about the future. Uh, I don't like it this low, though. Uh, it, it does make me feel a little bit uneasy. And, you know, late July sometimes has a little bit of, a, from a seasonality standpoint, maybe an uptick in volatility. Maybe we, we see a little bit of that um, between now and the end of the month. Uh, we'll have to see. But, yeah, I don't love it down here um, at 13. I don't really know how much it means. It's more of a, what are they, a coincidental indicator um, that it's it's happening with the market. It's not foretelling one way or the other. But as the market goes down, um, it goes up, right? But it's more at the same time. It's not telling us anything. Uh, but, but just says that I think the markets are complacent here. Yeah, and we'll probably see that continue. Like you said, maybe it'll pick up later on this month. It may be early September before – you know, the business new year starts after Labor Day uh, before we see volatility pick back up. But, you know, it, it's uh, there are a lot of, a lot of data points we look at. This just happens to be one of them. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun thing to, to look at and talk about. Fun when it's on the right side of the equation. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true, unless it's giving you a, a, an early indicator to get in and, yep. and make, make some money. But, yeah. Where do you want to go next, Andy? Let's, let's touch on CPI and PPI for just a minute. We've talked so much about it. Over the last year, it seems, you know, the Fed pays so much attention to it, and we talk about it. Um, I think we can give a little bit update there, but let's not spend a lot of time. Let's, let's actually talk about some of the implications of interest rates, um, and in particular, what it, what it means to the housing market. But, Bobby, maybe give us an update on the uh, consumer price index, producer price index, where we are and kind of that trend. Yeah, like you said, Sandy, I you know we, we talked so much about this and I get tired of talking about it. I'm sure our listeners do too. But, you know, I, I guess we don't have to get into the numbers other than to say that the, the core or the headline CPI did come in at about 3% um, growth, which is what we expected. And part of that was due to the fact that uh, you saw June of last year, which was the peak, roll off and a low number, you know, what was a 0.1 month over month this year, uh, roll on. And that, that's a big move. And we expected that, though, but it was even a little bit tamer than expected. And, and core was, I think, 4.8, you know, which still is high, you know, from where the Fed is looking at. But, you know, I think when you look at some of the internals, and maybe we'll touch on it, you know, it, inflation is, is clearly coming in. And, you know, Tom Lee has said, I think 45% of the CPI index now is in actual literal deflation, um, which the, the long-term average is around 30% of the index. So there's almost some deflation in there um, and certain elements uh, that we'll touch on that are keeping the, keeping it up, such as housing, as you mentioned. PPI, which I, I think tends to be more of a leader of what CPI, because what the, pr- what the producers the pay for their cost. prices have to, right, exactly, have to 
push that to CPI. So that is, continues to come in and, again, was very, very light once again. Um, so as as predicted, you know, we got light numbers on inflation, and, and inflation is definitely coming in. And, you know, my view is it's getting to be under control. And like I said last time, and, and I'm going to be wrong, I'll be the first to admit it, I said I thought the Fed was not going to raise in July, but it looks almost like a foregone conclusion that they are going to raise 25 basis points in their July meeting coming up here, um, I guess it's in two weeks, uh, less than two weeks. But What's interesting about the release this week, it did show that the second rate hike that was being forecasted uh, is pretty much off the table now between now and the end of the year. Um, so it, that helped and that moved the yield curve. You know, that was, I think, the big move of the week was seeing the 10-year began to creep back up, spiked above 4%, probably close somewhere around 3.8, 3.7 today. Um, so, you know, you saw the five-year come in significantly so you're you're starting to see longer term rates now come in after them them increasing a little bit. Well, you, you know, you talked about uh, deflation, cars, used cars, as an example. Let's let's talk. So, what's deflation really mean in the grand scheme of things? You know, I know you've been looking for a truck. Yeah. And um, <laughs> you're you're having fun, but probably tired of it. Yeah. But you know. Other than, I think if you found exactly what you were looking for, you would have bought it. But you're being patient. So talk a little bit about... Well, let's talk about the three elements of it, yeah. right? Inflation is the, the increase of prices year over year. The term disinflation, right? That's what the Fed wants to see. And that is slower growth of inflation, right? And then there's what you're talking about, absolute deflation, right? Deflation is prices actually falling down. And it becomes a mindset, right, on both sides. If deflation is expected by the consumer, that says that if I wait a month, if I wait two months, prices are going to be cheaper. So I'm not going to go buy that product today. I'm not going to go buy that washer, dryer, vehicle, house, if I thought prices were going to be cheaper in a month or two months. Well, that's terrible for the economy. If consumers stop spending immediately because they're going to wait for better prices in a month or two, well, guess what happens? That's not good. That's recession. Inventories start to pile up. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it causes all kinds of mess. And that's a mess. Um, inflation, on the other hand, if you thought, well, in six months, I'm going to pay double for this. You're going to go out and buy it today. People run out and buy it, and it actually it makes feeds. it worse. Yeah. yeah, it feeds it. So, you know, three different terms here. Deflation, disinflation, inflation. Uh, deflation. Deflation. The Fed doesn't want deflation. De- deflation, to some levels, worse than inflation because the Fed believes they can control inflation a little bit easier than they can control deflation. Um, disinflation is what we're all looking for, slower growth. Um, and nobody really was... And then manageable inflation from there, they're moving forward. Correct, exactly. You know, so that's, which is interesting. We saw a 9% increase, you know, prices last June. What's amazing to that is nobody ever predicted that that was going to come back down and go negative nine. It was, these prices are here forever, and they're hoping they're only going to go up 2 to 3% a year after that. So you have to lock in those higher prices, and consumers get used to that. And that's kind of what we're seeing in mortgages in the housing market. Uh, but yeah, you've got, we don't want deflation, I don't think. And with 45% of the CPI basket in deflation, that's, I don't want to say it's concerning yet, but you know, let's, the Fed again, go ahead and raise rates, I guess, but, well, but that, it's against what I'm of, saying. Yeah, my, my thought there is, and, and, and they certainly have more data than we do, but 
given given the increase in deflationary pressures within the uh, the index, you got to ask yourself why does the Fed feel so strongly to raise 25 basis points at the next meeting? And and you know maybe maybe that's the last thing they they feel like they're they're going to need to do. One could argue, have they gone too far, right? And and I know you were speaking earlier about when they started increasing rates last year was after the peak. Yeah, and let's talk about that, Sandy. This this is this is a good point. So the Fed's you know began raising rates um, last year. Obviously, they went I guess twenty five fifty. They didn't do their first seventy five basis point rate hike until June of last year. Do you remember what CPI was in June of last year? Yeah, it was the highest. North of nine, yeah. right? That was the peak. And that was middle of little June. After that, they did 75. And rates have been coming down ever since. And the Fed will tell you it takes 10, 10 to 12 months, 14 months, for their rate hikes to actually factor through the economy and slow the economy down. So how much impact is the Fed having with all these 75 basis point rate hikes when we were peaking out anyway at inflation in June? Now, some of it is expectations, what we talked about from the consumer, that they were getting nervous and that that all feeds into it and and, and prices and and cost of capital goes up because of interest rates. But, you know, they did this 75, their first 75 at the peak or after the peak of all this, which I find, you know, a little bit entertaining. And some of that is the forward looking mechanisms of the markets and themselves rates and and other things but the fed was late a little bit maybe because they called this transitory the whole way up remember that transitory transitory transitory. transitory. we don't need to raise rates we're going to keep buying mortgages as all this inflation was was building and then they were late to start they hiked significantly caused a little bit of turbulence in the market and here we are now they paused in june which we applauded them for i think it was the right thing to do inflation continues to fall and, you know, part of it, you mentioned the Mannheim car index earlier, used car index, that I think it dropped 4% or something month over month. That's real-time data. You look at, you know, Case-Shiller on the housing side, that's real-time data that's showing prices are flat or down. But when you look at the CPI and what the data that they pull from the CPI is showing, you're actually seeing significant increases in these prices still. I think, you know, what is it? Home prices are still showing 6 to 8%, and it's owner's equivalent rent, and that's how they, they factor this in. But actually, but the home data, prices, the data, the real-time data versus the lag data, exactly. and they're using lag data. The lag data, data is, is, is showing increases. Real-time data today showing decreases, disinflation, and maybe in some cases deflation. Right. And so, so the, why is the Fed going to do 25 basis points more? My guess is just to save face. They've been saying they're going to do it. They feel like they've got to do it. Okay, let's rip the Band-Aid off and then let's put the brakes on rate increases, let things wash out a little bit, and then we can see where things are. And, you know, I don't know if now's the right time to talk about it, but the concept of rate reductions, we're talking rates, talking rates, you know, going up again, 25 basis points, there's expectations that rates will fall sometime in 24. Well, all year this year, the market has been forecasting end of the year rate cuts, right? And we've been saying since the beginning, no way we see this. We can't imagine rates being cut between now and the end of the year without some terrible market. Right. Um, So we got that part of it right. The fact that I called them out and said they weren't going to raise rates in July last month, it is what it is. Um, I'm still disappointed that they're going to go through with this. Um, But I am happy to see that it looks like from a Fed probability or forecasting, the Fed watch tool out there, showing that they're not going to do a second rate hike at this point, and hopefully they are not going to do that. They'll 
pause after this for the rest of the year. And if they have to start raise, uh, cutting rates next year, it looks like March is what the forecast is, but March is it's an eternity in the market time. There's a lot, lot could happen. happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, that doesn't bother me at all. But hopefully this is it. And, you know, the, the Fed, I guess they're going to hike. But I, to what we just talked about, I don't, I don't understand it. Well, you know, the other thing I think that's worth mentioning, too, is, is that, that our, the, the, the economy is pretty darn resilient. And that's a great, great thing for all of us, consumers, investors, uh, business owners, consumers, um, I mentioned. Um, and if the economy can continue to be this resilient at these rate levels, that's a great thing because we spent you know, a decade plus at perhaps artificially low interest rates that needed to normalize. So if we can normalize rates, maybe they're a little higher than they need to be now, maybe we bring them down a little bit, but I think we're in a sweet spot with rates for the foreseeable future if we can get through this rate adjustment without too much damage to the economy. Yeah, and you know, you talked about the consumer and I'm jumping around a little bit. You know, I think it's a good time just to talk about the consumer sentiment number that came out this morning. University of Michigan, um, the first read, right? They'll they'll revise this at the end of the month, but it came in at 72.6 versus 64 last June. Um, and it was well above where expectations were at 65. And I think that's what you're talking about. The consumer is starting to feel better. They feel that inflation is under control. And if they could feel good, they could spend money. They, that's, that is a Without really causing good. prices to you know, get too far ahead of themselves again. Yeah, and just to give a little bit of context, this is, and it's not funny at all, it's not surprising, but you look at the all-time low for the consumer sentiment number was last June of 2022, which we talked about what happened June of 2022. Inflation peaked, right? People did not like having 9% inflation. It was a little bit scary, and that was 50, right? So we've been climbing back up, and the pre-pandemic high is 101. And we're at 70, what, 72 today. So we're almost at the midpoint of where we were, but, but increasing and beating expectations. And that's a great thing. Um, I really look, you know, you look at the index of consumer expectations was up. The current economic conditions is up. I mean, all elements of this um, sentiment were up this morning. So consumers feeling good, they could spend. That's a pretty... Well, that translates into businesses feeling good and spending and building up inventories and... and Which you remember last year, right, or last quarter, we're about to hit on earnings next week. We kick it off. The banks kicked it off today. JP did a really good job. Um, But earnings start, and last quarter was similar. We'll see if it's similar, and that was beating expectations. And where we're looking now, facts that put their their report out recently, um, we're above historical averages on companies that are raising expectations. And even though we're expected, I think, still a decline of 2 to 4% somewhere in earnings, if we beat like we did last time, maybe that becomes positive or flat, which would be another impressive thing. So earnings season coming up is going to be big. It's, you know, Jamie Dimon had some comments out today that the consumer continues to look strong. Um, although the, cha- the the spending habits are changing a little bit, but you know he's had some negative 
comments in the last 18 months around the consumer and the economy and was more positive this morning. So I think all this stuff, consumer sentiment, JP Morgan's comments, the banks have an insight into credit card usage, bankage usage and, and balances. We're relatively positive, which I think are is, is a positive thing um, for the economy and, and where we are. Hopefully the Fed just doesn't doesn't ruin it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, there's still a lot of cash on the sidelines. There's a reasonable amount of measured optimism, and that bodes well for the market continuing to behave in a reasonable manner, not getting ahead of itself on the upside, not being too pessimistic on the downside. So there's a lot of good things that are shaping up that, frankly, I'm surprised and feel uh, feel good about that. If you know, a year ago, six months ago, we're better off than I thought we were going to be. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm I'm a little bit surprised. The sentiment's creeping a little bit higher. The bull sentiment, the bull bear sentiment, is is shaping a little bit to the bull. I'm almost looking at that as saying, okay, people are being a little bit too optimistic here. Uh, maybe we do need a little bit of a pullback into July and August. You know that, I, you know the technical analysts will say, um, you know I think there's we're not at overbought conditions yet, but you know I, I it looks it feels like maybe a, a little breather. To, yeah. Eighteen and a half percent for the S and P right now. I mean that's that's pretty high. You know the other piece of this, Sandy, and, and it's talking about your optimism, is the IPO market. You know IPOs were dry last year. Twenty twenty two was a terrible year for IPOs. And we saw a little bit now of an uptick in IPOs. There were 23. Um, Renaissance Capital is, you know, they have an ETF out there that, that tracks um, IPOs. And there were 23, I believe, in the, the second quarter, 29 in the first quarter. Uh, deal volume is a little bit light. It was only, what, $6 billion or something. Um, which was only 2.3 in the first quarter. So, but, so you're starting to pick that up. Kava, uh, the restaurant chains, had um, a, an IPO here recently, which was phenomenal, um, and it was well-received. So the IPO market's starting to show a little bit of liquidity as well, which I think is a positive for the markets. Um, so a lot of things are, are starting to unfreeze that were that were pretty much frozen. And just to give you some clarity, Deal volume in 2022, according to Renaissance, first quarter 22, $2 billion, then $2 billion, $2 billion, $1 billion. So very light. We just hit $6 billion, 6.6 in the, uh, the fourth quarter or in the second quarter of, of 23. So um, IPO volume starting to pick up. That's a positive. That's good for the banks, too, and underwriting and that sort of thing. So a little bit of... Um, a little bit of positives out there, which I think we have to be a little bit happy about. Yeah, you were happy, but also, you know, it's our job to be measured and thoughtful about uh, where the risks are. And I think you, you did a good job of outlining them. When things start to seem too rosy, that's usually a time to put it, put the brakes on expectations. Yeah, perfect. Um, you know, Sandy, one other area of the market that I, I think we covered a lot of good stuff, maybe spent a minute longer than I would have liked on uh the Fed and inflation, you just know how that fires me up. Um, I could talk all day about it and I just don't understand it. But, um, you know, housing market, I, I think a lot of investors, consumers would would assume, and I think rightfully so, that the housing market should be not doing well in this environment. You yeah, know? higher interest rates, higher borrowing costs, just 
there, there, there's certainly a negative tone to that, but we've got some data that, that shows. Well, how important is the housing? That's why I think housing big, is a huge part of the economy. Economy and personal finances, yep. right? Homeowner, anybody that owns a home cares about what the housing, because it's, it's net worth. It's how you feel about yourself. And a lot of this is consistent with how you normally would feel about things. And that is, if you feel wealthier, you're willing to go spend. And if your house is worth more and you have more equity in your house, you feel more comfortable to spend. And it all feeds into consumer sentiment and all these other things. And while you see home prices we talked about earlier have cooled off significantly from a value standpoint, Home builders and home construction is hot. It's red hot. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, breaking it down a little bit. If, if you're a homeowner now, you've got a you've got a house. You're not likely to sell the house and move someplace else because of the interest rate you've got on your current mortgage is probably more attractive than if going out to the market and getting a new one. More attractive? <laughs> I mean, three percent to seven. I yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Right, and so that that's that's really not helping. Uh, create inventory for existing homes. And so the home builders, like you said, are red hot, and they're in the catbird seat. You know, existing homes aren't trading, and so they're building, they're being selective about it, and their input costs have stabilized, there's demand for it. Um, if you could, give us the rate of return on some of the indexes that, that uh, and ETFs that we follow that are home building uh, oriented. Yeah, so there's a, a home builders ETF, and, and these ETFs, some of them are more, you know, builders themselves, like they're actually ones building it. But a big part of building a new home is what goes in it: the water heater washer, companies, dryers, carrier, washer dryer, um, heat points, right? Yeah. Um, Ao Smith. I mean, these are great companies. Carrier, you know, these are wonderful companies. So it's it's a comp. Some of the they all own Home Depot and and Lowe's as well, uh, which also bodes well for those people that aren't selling that you just referred to. But you look at the home builder ETF, it's up 30, 39% year to date. The home construction ETF, uh, up 45%. None of these are recommendations, obviously. Um, and QQQ, the technology, we talked about the Magnificent 7 many times earlier, is up 42 So these home builders are, are keeping up with the, the most the, the, the hottest the part flyer. of the market yeah. yeah so and i think it's exactly what you said and that is there's no inventory right it's almost like the energy trade from last year right it was all supply and demand um, we have that this year there's no supply out there so these home builders no there's all the the home sales majority is coming from new construction it's not coming from existing sales because people aren't putting their houses up on the market and the, these home constructing companies are doing very well, and all these inputs need to go in there. Um, so it's one area of the market that is just, you know, red hot with, you know, opportunities of investors. But it does seem that you look at that 7% seems to be from a mortgage, mortgage. that seems to be the tipping point. Yeah, you know, people are almost comfortable with six, six and a quarter, six and a half. You start climbing up, you see mortgage applications kind of tank um, when it hits over seven. And that's where rates were headed up. And then now they've retreated a little bit and mortgage rates are back down into the mid sixes. So um, I find the, the home construction, I, I continue to think that sector is very interesting to watch given where we are right now in the supply and demand. And it's going to take years, right, for this supply and demand to work itself out. Uh, it, it just, it's, well, it's also a social change. You know, everywhere you look, they're building multifamily housing. And, and you know, when I was a young, young adult, 
buying a house was number one on my my list. You know, that was get a job, buy a house. And now that's not the case. So it's really interesting to see how things will shake out. I think I think over the next three or four years, the dynamic in housing is going to continue to, to evolve. And I think if we see an interest rate reduction, certainly that's good for housing in general. I don't think that's going to necessarily mean a headwind for home builders. You just talked about they're, they're in the catbird seat. Rates falling, you'll see more home existing homes change hands, but that shouldn't come at the expense of home builders. Um, so I, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a really interesting dynamic going on. I would like to do one thing real quick, and that is, Bobby, you mentioned an ETF. So let's just talk from a fundamental point of view, what is an ETF? And then we'll kind of wrap things up here. Yeah, so you know, you could look at investing in different vehicles, right? You could buy a stock outright, everybody knows, they turn on the ticker, you see stocks. You can buy a mutual fund where you hire a professional money manager to, to buy stocks for you. Um, an ETF you know, stands for Exchange Traded Fund, and a, there's a number of ways to do it, but it, it essentially owns a basket of stocks. You know, what similar I, to a mutual fund. Similar. Oftentimes, this is changing now in the dynamic of the world, that it used to be passive where it will replicate an index. So I referenced earlier the home builder and home construction. One of the ones I referenced is the Spider, which is an ETF provider and an index provider. S&P Home Builder ETF, and the other one is iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF. There's an index for both of those ind- for both of those ETFs, and it mimics that index. You could go define; it's defined out there. What is there? This what are index. the stocks that are held in that? Basket? What's an index? So the S&P 500 is an index, right? Yeah. The biggest 500 companies with profitability, and it's defined out there how to get in the S&P 500. And to your point, Sandy, these ETFs track an index, home builders, home construction, that is defined on certain criteria. And they have biotech, they have, you know, technology, you know. Consumer staples, consumer durables. Yeah, you you can now short Tesla with an ETF, you know. There's all ways to do it. But it trains intraday, you know. That's, That's another difference in the ETF structure. It trades As during the day. To a mutual fund. Mutual fund closes four o'clock. The price of that day, whatever you put in, that's the price you get. You could buy an ETF at 10 o'clock in the morning, sell it at two o'clock in the afternoon if you want. Um, so it's exchange traded, which is why it trades like it does. Um, they're starting to become more active. Uh, there's active options now out there. Uh, but it's a, it's a good way that if you don't have the capacity to do fundamental analysis on individual stocks, but you like a sector, you can go out there and buy an ETF without having to know and take that individual stock risk, right? When you buy one versus 50, but you get industry exposure. Yeah, and and, and again, whether a person has the time or energy or inclination is one part of it. The other part of it is why we like them is it's a basket. It's a diversified portfolio within a sector. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you explaining that because, you know, we talk about mutual funds and separately managed accounts and interval funds, all these different types of vehicles that help us allocate dollars for our clients. Uh, when we come across these things, we'll make a point to, uh, to just to describe how they work. So let, let's, um, let, let's make a few more concluding comments and, and, and we'll gear up for the next one. 
Yeah, Sandy, I mean, I, I'm ready to wrap up. I think it was a good dialogue. I don't want to hold our listeners too long. But, you know, last time, I'm not going to get in the habit of doing this, but one number we left with was the VIX last time. You know, this this month, the one thing maybe to look at and keep an eye on is the dollar. Uh, the dollar has weakened here um, month to date. It's, you know, we, we, we're two weeks into the month and we've had a holiday and two weekends and it's de- um, declined a little bit, 3% or so, which is a decent move for the dollar. And I'll be interested to see how that shakes out. You know, where the central bank is not as aggressive as other central banks globally, and typically when you're raising rates, you get to a level where you are that that central bank or that currency, you know, value is increased. And now the, the U.S. was ahead of it. The, the dollar was very strong for a while and now it's starting to weaken a little bit. So it's something to keep an eye on. I think it, it, and that's it, not necessarily good or bad. We'll, we'll talk about some of the implications about international investing and repatriating dollars and what that means to return. Um, but, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see the dollar. How, how it how it performs over the next 30 days. Yeah, well, well that's something to look at, and, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'm interested. That's one one point that I'm looking at here over the next 30 days I think will be interesting to see. Um, anything else for our clients, Sandy, that you want to well, throw I'm, I'm in I'm sure there? We'll, we'll talk about CPI and PPI <laughs> next next time too, but, you know. Earnings season should be, we should get some good numbers out of, or not, maybe not good, but we'll have numbers to hopefully talk about. They're good. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they're good, but at least it's, I'm not making a prediction one way or another. But, you know, hopefully we, we'll, we'll be able to give an update on earnings, see how the consumer's doing at that point. And, and a read uh, on the general economy. Yeah. And, you know, if the VIX is, is memorable or something we want to bring up, we'll bring it up again. If not, you know, we'll let that one fade until it, it becomes something more, more interesting to talk about. Well, good. Thanks for your time today, Bobby. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. Uh, uh, Have a good one. See you next month. Yep. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Beer Markets. For important disclosure information, please visit acgwealthmanagement.com forward slash podcast disclosure.